we've been talking about it for months, this idea that the most effectual strategic way for Russia and China to respond to the West is actually by reducing the supply of resources. And we're seeing it again. I think this thesis is being borne out once again with wheat and the cancellation of this Black Sea grain initiative where Ukraine was able to ship out their grain out of the Black Sea. I think we're seeing it again. I call it the perfect crime. Hello and welcome back to the Northern Miner podcast where we are putting the pieces of the puzzle together as far as the resources in this larger puzzle of the world news. And we are trying to contextualize what the resource cards, how they are being played on a global level. That is one of the tasks I have assigned myself as host here. And I think it's just too fascinating of a subject to let fall by the wayside. And again, we're finding it at the core of the news narrative here. And we just saw that attack on Crimea's Kerch Bridge. The Ukrainians took responsibility. The Russians are blaming Ukraine and the U.S. and the U.K. And shortly thereafter, it looks like the grain deal is the casualty. So we saw this with China and the germanium and gallium, and we have an update on that story here today, and now we're seeing it with the grain. Again, if you're looking at things from the Chinese and Russian perspective, you probably don't want a kinetic war, a shooting war, with the West right now, because frankly, the West is kind of looking like it's looking for a fight right now. And so you're probably trying to avoid that. But again, what I call the perfect crime here, no fingerprints while attacking your opponent is to reduce the supply of things that they don't have. And what does that do? It hurts their ability to fight if they don't have enough aluminum. And we're seeing smelters being shut down in China right now, allegedly over the use of electricity because there is a heat wave there. So again, maybe legitimate, maybe not, we're not sure. But the end result is we're seeing smelters being shut down. We're seeing grain shipments out of Ukraine being halted, and that will hurt. That should stoke inflation. And also we look at OPEC+. Plus who seems to be largely in the BRICS camp, and they are also going out of their way to reduce supply of oil in order to maintain, let's say, an $80 a barrel oil price. So we're seeing it across the board. Interestingly, I would say we're not really seeing any effects of this yet. I mean, we haven't seen copper go crazy. It is still below $4 a pound. We have seen a jump in silver. I mean, that really was the standout of the last week. It went above $25. It is taking a slight pause. But all to say, things are still relatively stable. I mean, let's check the oil price here. Brent crude is at $78.72 per barrel. So we are approaching that $80 per barrel price. And West Texas Intermediate is at $74.40 per barrel. Gold remains below $2,000 at $1,967, and copper is still below $4 at $3.80. Turning to the bond market just quickly here, yields have come down, and I'm sure to the relief 
of many in government here, the UK 10-year gilt is at 4.35%. Remember, that was up at 4.66%. And again, the UK pension crisis occurred just below 4.5% last October. The US 10-year is back below 4% at 3.748. So let's call that 3.75% after being above 4%. So bond yields have fallen. Commodities are still what you might consider relatively low. But all the risk, as I was discussing with our CEO Spotlight guest before our call with Hugh Agro, who's asking how Germany was doing with energy. And I took a look at Nat Gas just on CNBC. So I guess the American price here on the New York Mercantile Exchange And you look at the chart and it's at $2.51. And I was telling him, well, I don't really know too much more than you do, but it seems to me all the risk is on the upside here. Are we going to get a dollar nat gas? Well, who knows? I mean, let's put it this way. I'd say the likelihood of $5 nat gas is much more likely than $1.50. It seems like it's hard to imagine it going much lower than this. But I mean, again, one never knows should we hit a recession that many people have been waiting for. It has not showed up. So there is a lot at play here as we try and sort all this out. I am choosing to focus here, which is the mandate of this show, on natural resources, in particular, specifically the metals. And so we have updates from around the world on what countries are doing in terms of reducing supplies, say in China's case, if you add grains to the mix, in case of Russia. And also what countries are doing, like Canada, to encourage the rapid development of these metals projects. So it's quite an exciting time here in this industry. And so coming up as our feature content, I'm very pleased to welcome Cecilia Jamasmi from Mining.com. We're going to do a deep dive on deep sea mining. And it's quite interesting what is happening. I have a story here which should bring us generally up to date to set the table for us. But again, we're seeing the classic argument here between the environment and development. I mean, and we're seeing it at the United Nations level with the International Seabed Authority, who has met in Kingston, Jamaica, in regard to the seabed mining and what to do. I mean, this issue of seabed mining has really been there at least since, I would say, 2013. I started at the Northern Miner newspaper in October of 2012, as online editor. And I remember the first story I wrote was on Nautilus, which was a deep sea mining company. It later turned to Deep Green, and I think it has a new name now because of all of the environmental pushback they had. There's a lot of uncertainty out there in terms of deep sea mining, and people just automatically assume it's a negative. But I remember when I was discussing with the CEO of of Deep Green, it sounded quite innocuous. You know, he made it sound like you had these little kind of mini submarines that could just reach out and pick up these, you know, round metallic spheres, nodules as they call them, off the seabed floor. And basically, it wasn't hurting a thing. He was arguing it was the most environmental thing ever. So I guess the point of this, though, is I feel like they're still trying to figure this out. It is literally 10 years later. And now the world is starting to feel a lot more hunger for these metals, and they're still trying to figure it out. So we're going to get a big, full update on this incredibly important subject of deep-sea mining with Cecilia Jamasmi 
in this episode. So lots to look forward to. And finally, coming up in October, we have the Canadian Mining Symposium. Just go to events.northernminer.com. Robert Friedland is going to be there, as well as Catherine McLeod-Seltzer, who is the independent chair at Kinross Gold, David Garofalo, Frank Gistra, Don Lindsay, former CEO of Tech, John A. McCluskey, Sean Rosen, and Randy Smallwood, to name just a few of the incredible speakers that we're going to have in London here. So that's going to be October 12th and 13th. That is coming up sooner than you might think. I mean, this summer, we are already more than midway through July. But in the meantime, check out events.northernminer.com. If you're interested in attending, you can reserve your ticket for October 12th and 13th at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Hugh Agro, President and CEO of Revival Gold for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Hugh Agro, President and CEO of Revival Gold to the Northern Miner Podcast for this week's CEO Spotlight. Hugh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Adrian. Great to be back. It's great to have you back, Hugh. It was fascinating hearing about the Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in the Western United States. So tell us, what is new with the company since the last time we talked? Yeah, lots of news out recently. Just just did a big resource update and a PFS on our first phase of operation to uh, to restart the project. So now 4.6 million ounces of gold. That makes us the second largest new discovery of gold in the entire United States in the last decade. And this first phase project with a $109 million capital to produce 65,000 ounces a year of gold has got the stamp of approval of a, of a PFS and we're marching forward. Excellent. So you have the PFS. And so for those that are, you know, maybe new to mining or who are casually listening because they're maybe interested in the gold stock trade, perhaps... Tell us, what does that mean, in a sense, the pre-feasibility study for your project? What does that give you? It's a major de-risking step in the process as we move from nil in resource six years ago on founding the company to today that 4.6 million ounces and a mine plan that's been vetted and uh, includes all of the appropriate estimates around geotechnical, hydrological, capital cost, equipment, and so on, that gives us confidence in the numbers. And of course, this is a, a process. It, it takes time. And in our case, it's been about a year and a half in the making. So lots of work that's gone into it, major de-risking step and positive outcomes all around. 24% after-tax IRR on the project, $105 million NPV. And that's just on the, the eight years of proven and probable reserve mine life. Of course, uh, we're drilling again. We've got uh, more exploration on the way. And that mine life is uh, certainly going to increase. And that's before we even get to our second phase mill opportunity in the resource. So big step forward for the company. It sounds like it. So this is primarily a gold project. So what do you think is there in terms of the resource? So what do you guys think is underground? And is it far underground or is it uh, you know close to the surface? How hard is this going to be to mine? So it is 100% gold. And you mentioned the underground. We had a three times uh, increase in our underground resource with this study and a one-third increase in the grade. 
Uh, so uh, I, the potential, uh, gosh, I would say it's quite quite exciting. We started out, we had an objective of 3 million ounces, and uh, we're now at 4.6, as I've said now a couple of times. I, I think this just continues to grow. The open pit heap leach resource increased almost two and a half times to about a million ounces of gold at 0.7 grams per ton. And this thing just keeps giving. As I said, we're, we're started drilling again um, and we're on some exploration targets. And this is really, as we think about, you know, for investors, why be in uh, gold equities? This is the reason why investors choose gold equities. Of course, there's a great case for, for the price of gold. I'd like to uh, chat a bit about that with you. But if you just think about the exposure in a gold equity, there's real option value in resources increasing, as we've discussed. And then there's the, the, the price increase and the benefits that that has to, to a project. And uh, of course, you've got lots of exposure to that. Just to put this into perspective, an increase in the gold price of, of say, $10 on a, on a four or five million ounce deposit adds four or five hundred million dollars of in situ value. Our market cap today is 40 to 50 million dollars, one tenth of that. So there's lots of exposure with a large gold project like this. And as we've discussed, in the Western United States, a safe jurisdiction, good place to be in terms of uh, taxation, in terms of uh, certainty of title, and in terms of employing people. And those are all favorable aspects, of course. I want to get to the gold price uh, that you mentioned. But just before we do, since you mentioned it, how is the support then? Do you guys have all your permits in line? Like, how is everything in terms of the, I guess, the political side of things? Are people helpful? How is it to work out there? And do you have everything you need? Or are you... Do you still need certain permits? Uh, where does that all stand? The U.S. is is not the easiest place in the world to permit, but the thing about it is it's a known process, and we've been through it now uh, five times on the drilling side. Just completed a big NEPA, National Environmental Protection Agency, NEPA drill permitting exercise at the end of last year, and we've already commenced with baseline data collection for the re-permitting of the Bear Track RNAT site. Of course, this is Idaho's largest past producing gold mine. Uh, we are on an existing plan of operations, so it's a repermitting of that site. And uh, I think we're in good shape with that. Uh, very favorable state, uh, Idaho, in terms of uh, the state government and their support for responsible exploration and mining. We're on hydropower with power line already in, ADR facility, uh, that's the gold processing facility uh, constructed and, and ready to be refurbished. Uh, these are all favorable ESG aspects as we think about this project and its place in the industry generally. Low carbon footprint, mostly mechanical equipment and our capital cost, not a lot of earth moving, which is, uh, of course, a more risky aspect to these projects because the roads, the leach pad and the ADR facility uh, uh, foundations are already in. So, yes, good place to be. Western United States, known process and support in our uh, local community for the project, uh, given the past history of successful operation. Well, I would say hydropower is, these days, that must be an excellent kind of thing to have on your side. So regarding the gold price, I mean, I like to say the CEOs are some of the best informed people on particular metals that they're dealing with or on the metals market. I mean, what is your view? You mentioned it earlier. You have some thoughts on that. What is your view of the gold market right now? I mean, we're still below $2,000 here, but it seems like the animal spirits are starting to come into the sector, but you tell me, what do you see and how are you seeing things? 
Well, I think we first have to start with the fact that gold is an enduring asset. I mean, we've got a 5,000-year history of gold being uh, an important store of value in human existence. And if you look at what's happened over the last uh, couple of decades, uh, the escalation in food prices, most, most recently with, uh, with what's going on in, in, in Ukraine, the escalation in house pricings. Gosh, look at uh, what's happening in sports franchises, you know, the Gulf states in tennis and in golf and players like Messi are getting... $150 million contracts. I mean, this is ex- illustrative of the declining value of our fiat currencies. The equity market is is trading with that, right? Up to 24 times earnings in the S&P 500. And this, I think, is very illustrative of, a, of an underlying problem in our financial system. And, and gold has that history of performing over long, long periods of time. I think gold will continue to perform if you look at the gold equities themselves, trading at some of the best values that we've seen in the last 10 or 20 years, EVs to EBITDA five to seven times, that's about one third the level of the S&P 500. Free cash flow yields in the senior gold sector and the intermediate gold sector, four to 7%. Dividends of two and a half to 3%. You know, Compare that with the S&P 500. I think there's tremendous value, not just in gold, as a store of value relative to where other assets are trading in the world, but also in gold equities. And why is that? That's because gold equities, you know, to use the classic uh, Warren Buffett phrase, have a moat around them. They are a business that are difficult to replicate. They're hard to permit. They're even harder to operate and operate well. And uh, this is let alone finding them in the first place. So here we have Bear Track Arnett Gold Project, one of the largest deposits of, of uh, new discovery uh, in the world, let alone in the United States. It's in a good location. It's on a brownfield site. It's got a low capital cost to entry, one of the lowest in, uh, relative to our peers at about $200 per ounce for capital. And we're marching forward here to uh, put it back into production. Uh, this is a great place to be. And, uh, and, and I think it's a, a solid investment trading at eight, uh, $9 an ounce in the ground lots of upside. Well, it sounds like a wonderful opportunity. I mean, you say it so well, it makes me almost want to run around the block here in excitement. And so in closing, then, as we wrap up here, Hugh, what do investors have to look forward to? What is next? Now you got the PFS study done. Gold's looking great. And I think you really characterize the value opportunity quite persuasively. What do investors have to look forward to with Revival gold in the coming weeks, months, and maybe even a couple of years. First up is is more exploration drilling. This is the way you add value to an existing positive pre-feasibility studies to continue to extend mine life. So we're drilling right now in our Romans Trench target area. We'll be back to our Haiti target area. We're drilling in a uh, in a new target, a completely uh, new target at Ridge uh, later this summer. And uh, this is all focused on uh, uh, oxide, open pit, heap leachable material to extend that existing eight-year mine life of proven and probable reserve. Of course, we've got inferred material. We can continue to convert and and build on that uh, resource life. We're also doing uh, advanced metallurgical test work on high-grade sulfide material for our mill uh, scenario. We already got uh, 94% recovery on our, our metallurgical test work on that material. But what we're looking at now is the prospect of shipping a concentrate. So we're working uh, through that uh, those steps. And I think uh, 2024, we'll continue on with the baseline work and the permitting preparations. 
We'd like to get a, a study in on that second phase mill opportunity where we think there's the potential to march our production up from 65,000 ounces a year to perhaps 200 or 250,000 ounces a year uh, through the mill scenario. And all of that to come. In the meantime, we're funded to continue on with our exploration. So in really good shape, heading into what I think is going to be an exciting fall season. It sure sounds like it. And thank you for giving us that great overview of the gold sector as well as your project. And it's great to have you back here. Do come back again. Hugh Agro, President and CEO of Revival Gold. Thank you once again for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. And turning to the website, a showdown in Jamaica is deciding the fate of the deep ocean. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. In June, the United Nations approved a landmark treaty to preserve ocean biodiversity, seeming to augur a transformation in how countries and corporations do business on the high seas. Now, the high seas is international waters, but as the UN-affiliated International Seabed Authority ISA meets in Kingston, Jamaica this week. It will be writing rules for deep sea mining that threatens the very ecosystems in need of preservation. The ISA's annual meeting comes at a pivotal moment for seabed mining, which has the potential to become a trillion dollar industry as the transition to electric vehicles spurs demand for metals like cobalt and nickel found in the deep ocean. On July 9th, a deadline passed for the ISA to enact regulations for deep sea mining. The group's 167 member nations, plus the European Union, are now obligated to accept license applications from companies that want to begin mining, even in the absence of environmental safeguards. How the ISA will respond to applicants is a key question for the coming weeks. The authority could also consider a proposal from Chile, France, Palau, and Vanuatu to prohibit the approval of any mining licenses until regulations are enacted. The ISA, which has a permanent staff of 52 people and an annual budget of around $10 million, is convening amid an intensifying geopolitical showdown over seabed mining. A growing number of ISA members' nations in Europe, Latin America, and the Pacific are calling for a moratorium or pause on mining due to a dearth of scientific knowledge about deep-sea ocean systems and seabed mining's impact on them. As the ISA meeting opened on Monday, member nation Canada, an industrial mining giant, joined the call for a moratorium. Meanwhile, pro-mining member states that include China, Russia, Norway, Japan, and South Korea are pressing the ISA to complete the regulations and begin issuing licenses. And it goes into a history of the ISA, which began in 1982 at the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, that established the ISA to regulate the exploitation of the seabed in international waters and to ensure the effective protection of the marine environment. And scrolling down a bit, since 2017, the ISA has been slowly developing a complex quote-unquote mining code meant to include environmental standards, a formula for sharing mining royalties, and inspection and compliance procedures for policing industrial activity that would occur thousands of miles offshore and two and a half miles below the ocean surface. And it also says here, most mining companies are focused on polymetallic nodules, potato-sized rocks rich in cobalt, nickel, and other metals. And apparently, most of these lie in a region of the Pacific Ocean called the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, which lies between Hawaii and Mexico. So that is interesting. 
And finally, why is deep-sea mining controversial? In a 2022 peer-reviewed study, a team of leading deep-sea scientists conducted an exhaustive review of available research and found, quote, no or next-to-no scientific knowledge, end quote, for most of the seabed targeted for mining. The researchers, who included four members of the ISA Legal and Technical Commission, determined that the effective regulation of deep-sea mining is not currently possible. A separate peer-reviewed paper published this May determined that the areas of the Clarion-Clipperton zone are home to more than 5,000 species, nearly all of them unknown to science. According to ISA documents, some mining contractors have repeatedly failed to conduct sufficient environmental baseline research on the areas targeted for mining as required by their exploration contracts. Such data is crucial to implement effective environmental regulations. A 2019 National Geographic investigation found that over a 16-year period, some contractors had collected only a single biological sample for every 4,000 square miles of their 29,000 square mile areas. And finally, what is the argument in favor of deep sea mining? Mining proponents argue that exploiting the seabed would be far less damaging to the environment and society than terrestrial mining that destroys rainforests, pollutes waterways, and employs children as laborers. TMC portrays deep sea mining as crucial to fighting climate change by obtaining metals to make electric car batteries, wind turbines, and other technologies. And finally, the ISA Council meets from July 10th to July 21st, and so going for another few days here, and will spend most of its time trying to reach agreements on mining regulations. The Assembly meets July 24th to 28th. So interesting. So the Council meets from the 10th to the 21st, and the Assembly meets from July 24th to 28th. A particularly thorny issue is the amount of royalties mining companies will be required to pay the ISA and how they would be distributed to member states for resources that belong to all countries. A big question is when and whether any delegation will formally move to bring a moratorium or pause on deep sea mining to a vote. So that is all coming to a head, this deep sea mining issue. And continuing on, gallium price jumps as buyers lock in supply before China export controls. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. And it says here global gallium prices jumped 27% this week as buyers reacted to China's move to control exports of the niche metal used in an array of high-tech industries. You know, considering that it's a complete ban and they almost own the entire market, we're highlighting gallium last week, 27% jump is pretty reasonable. Beijing's announcement on Monday has been viewed as a retaliation over recent trade restrictions targeting the country's semiconductor industry and comes amid broader efforts by the U.S. and Europe to reduce its dominance in the supply chain for critical raw materials. The gallium market was well supplied before the announcement, but buyers are now moving in to lock in shipments before the controls kick in, according to one trader who said he has been actively buying this week. Gallium and germanium are high-value products that are produced in small volumes, and traders don't typically hold large volumes in stock, he said, requesting anonymity to discuss commercially sensitive matters. Gallium and other minor metals aren't typically traded on futures exchanges, and price benchmarks are set by publishers like Fast Markets, whose journalists survey producers, consumers, and traders. Gallium rose to $326 a kilogram on Friday, the Fast Markets data showed, up $43 from a week ago. You know, that's nothing, in my humble opinion here. In an early sign that buyers are seeking to shore up supplies before the export controls kick in next month. Germanium, which is also subject to the restrictions, saw a much smaller impact rising only 
1.9%. It's still unclear how the new measures might affect Chinese shipments. From August 1st, exporters will need to apply for licenses from the Commerce Ministry if they want to start or continue to ship them out of the country and will be required to report details of the overseas buyers and their applications. And we have a quote here from Colin Hamilton of BMO Capital Markets. Quote, this is a further example of how industrial raw materials are becoming increasingly strategic in global markets and brought to the center of policy action. Chinese Ministry of Commerce spokesman Xu Jueting on Thursday emphasized that the controls don't amount to a ban on exports and said that the measures are designed to ensure that the metals are used for legal purposes. Interesting. And final quote here from Bernard Dada, an analyst at Natixis, who said in an emailed note, quote, far from being the nuclear option that it could have chosen, for China, the gallium and germanium export controls seem to be a first warning shot. Quote, China does control other metals through which it can inflict more severe consequences. So just a warning shot. Fascinating commentary. And continuing on, heat in China's Sichuan hits power as metal output fears grow. It's Bloomberg News via Mining.com. Industries, including metals producers, are bracing for curbs on electricity supplies in Sichuan province as parts of China grapple with extreme weather that's lifting demand and disrupting hydropower generation. Power consumption in Sichuan reached a record high on Monday with temperatures above 35 degrees Celsius, according to local media. That's exacerbating already low hydro dam levels after a drought in the southwestern province last year. Aluminum smelters, now again, remember aluminum is congealed electricity, often called by some traders. This is why often smelters are near hydropower, which seems like the perfect solution until your dam levels start falling because of drought. Aluminum smelters near the provincial capital of Chengdu have been ordered to reduce power consumption which may see annualized capacity of about 50,000 tons of the metal idled, Shanghai Metals Market said in a note. Silicon producers in Sichuan's Ebian County have been asked to cut production from July 3rd to 21st due to extreme weather, according to a notice reported by researcher My Steel. And they do think that maybe this supply cut could be offset by resumption of units near Yunnan province, where smelters are bringing back more than 1 million tons of capacity by next month after heavy rain in June eased shortages. Across the entire country, hydro generation fell about 33% in May from a year earlier, according to the National Bureau of Statistics. And I mean, this is how important it is. President Xi Jinping visited State Grid Corp of China's research unit in Nanjing last week and reiterated that energy security and safety was of great importance to the country. The nation has ramped up coal production and imports of the fossil fuel in a bid to secure enough power supplies this summer. Aluminum prices rallied as much as 2.1% on the LME. Other metals were mixed, with additional stimulus measures for China's real estate sector lending some support. To revive the market, the country's regulators have long been expected to come up with more supportive policies. But I believe we have yet to see that. Now, I don't want to go long here. Uh, We have a few more stories, though, so I'm going to run through them. China's limit on chip metals self-defeating, Sullivan says, Bloomberg News via Mining.com. So Jake Sullivan, White House National Security Advisor, said that China will only harm itself with planned restrictions on the export of two metals used in the semiconductor. Quote, I think it's a self-defeating move because I believe that will only reinforce the determination of many other countries in the world to de-risk. 
Sullivan said in an interview with CBS's Face the Nation. Those countries will be spurred, quote, to find ways to reduce dependencies and increase resilience of their own supply chains, including for the kinds of minerals that are at issue in this particular decision. That may be true in the long run, but it seems like they're going to have a cut in August 1st in actually about two weeks. So it makes you wonder how much they actually know about how long this might take. Continuing on, President Joe Biden's administration has been stepping up diplomacy to tell Beijing that while the U.S. doesn't intend to decouple from trade with China, it will defend what it views as its national security interests. According to Jake Sullivan, uh, this is good news because other countries will de-risk. Just a headline here from Mining.com, a staff writer, new form of silicon could revolutionize quantum computing. And actually, just two, two lines here, researchers at North Carolina State University have discovered a new distinct form of silicon called Q-silicon, which, amongst other interesting properties, is ferromagnetic at room temperature. In a paper published in the journal Materials Research Letters, the scientists explain that their findings could lead to advances in quantum computing, including the creation of a spin-qubit quantum computer that is based on controlling the spin of an electron. So, before you know it, we may need different materials to make these semiconductors. So let's see where everything goes. And another headline here, rare earth's prices sink to lowest since 2020 as China ramps up supply. So here supplies are being ramped up. Prices for rare earths sank to their lowest since late 2020 this week as soft demand from green energy companies and the automotive sector combined with rising supply from top producer China, analysts said on Thursday. And we have a quote from analyst Dan Morgan of Baron Joey in Sydney, quote, the demand side has not been super strong and the key weakness had been wind turbine installations. If you've got 90% market share of magnet processing capacity, there's a Goldilocks price where you earn a return, but you don't encourage anyone in the rest of the world to build capacity. Interesting. So in other words, if you make your magnets too expensive, other people will start building them too, which is an interesting point. So rare earth prices are falling. And another headline, Bloomberg News via mining.com, U.S. bill aims to counter China control of Congo critical minerals. The chairman of the House Africa Subcommittee, Representative John James of Michigan, introduced a bill requiring the creation of a U.S. national strategy to secure supply chains of critical minerals from the Democratic Republic of Congo. The dominance of Chinese companies in the extraction, processing, and refining of these minerals, quote, represents an economic and national security threat, end quote, that impacts energy independence and military preparedness, according to the draft bill. So we're back to this idea that minerals are front and center for policymakers increasingly here. I don't know how you put legislation in to force Congo out of these deals with China, though, like, especially just legislation out of a completely other country. We'll see what they do. Graphite One stock jumps on $37.5 million grant from U.S. government. So Graphite One has been awarded a Department of Defense Technology Investment Agreement grant of $37.5 million under the Defense Production Act, funded through the Inflation Reduction Act. So that is interesting. The funding will help the company to accelerate the feasibility study for its Graphite Creek project 35 miles north of Nome, Alaska. So we have been following that project for years here, and so interesting how times change. And now they're getting government help to the tune of $37 million. Continuing on, Rio Tinto grabs stake in graphite-focused sovereign metals. So graphite here, it's interesting. There might be 
concern around graphite. And remember, we had that interview just recently. We had a deep dive on the importance of graphite about six weeks ago on this podcast, worth checking out, a crucial component of the green transition. Just a paragraph here, Rio Tinto agreed on Monday to buy a 15% stake in Australia's sovereign metals for $40 million Australian, $27 million US, becoming a top investor in the critical minerals developer. The move by the world's second largest miner marks its first public step into the graphite sector as it continues to boost its exposure to battery minerals. Continuing on, Canada to speed up critical minerals permits in bid to erode China's dominance. So Canada is speeding up its permitting, something that the industry has been asking for for years. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government hopes to unveil a plan by the end of this year to streamline permitting for mining projects as the U.S. and its allies push to accelerate the production of critical minerals in North America. Canada faces mounting pressure to keep pace with its southern neighbor as the U.S. wraps up efforts to secure the metals needed for electric vehicles, solar panels, and wind turbines. American lawmakers have been debating legislation that could substantially speed up approval times for resource projects. And we have a quote here from Heather Exner Piro, Special Advisor with the Business Council of Canada. Quote, we know the Americans are getting much more serious on permitting reform as commodity prices go up and we start to see some shortages of critical metals. If we want to be in the critical minerals business, we have to move on it. So even waiting to the end of the year seems a little long here. She continues, quote, it's a very political process and from an investor perspective, that creates uncertainty and risk. You don't know if a politician is going to put the brakes on a mine development five years from now. Very interesting. So Canada steps on the gas as far as permitting. And also just a headline here, the strike that snarled Canada's ports is going to end after a deal is reached. And that is Bloomberg News. So the dock workers union is going to stop its 13 day strike in Canada's Western ports. And so that I'm sure is a relief. Those strikes in ports are incredibly expensive. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. metal prices. Gold is trading at $1,955.05 per ounce. That is $30 higher than last week. Silver also higher, $24.81 per ounce. That is $1.77 higher than last week, so big jump in silver. Platinum is at $977.70 per ounce. That is $50 higher than last week. And palladium is also higher at $1,285.92 per ounce. That is $45 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.84 per pound. That is $0.07 higher than last week. Iron ore is up $2 at $111.81 per metric ton. Aluminum is trading up $0.05 at $1.02 per pound. Lead is also higher at 96 cents per pound. That is three cents higher than last week. Nickel is 36 cents higher at $9.71 per pound. 
Tin is nine cents higher at $12.95 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. And lithium is slightly higher at $42.92 per kilogram. That is 33 cents higher than last week. And uranium is lower at $55.40 per pound. That is 25 cents lower than last week. And zinc is higher at $1.09 per pound. That is two cents higher than last week. Well, it seems here, zooming out, that almost all of the metals are higher. And it seems that we'd have to attribute that to a falling U.S. dollar, which is rising all the prices of the metals here. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Mining.com Senior Editor Cecilia Jamazmi back to the program. And here we're going to discuss deep sea mining and all of the concern and all of the questions relating to deep sea mining that have been circulating. They are meeting in Kingston, Jamaica for a two-week conference. And afterwards, there is going to be another four-day meeting regarding deep sea mining. So it is coming to a head. There is a deadline that has passed. So we are turning to Cecilia Jamazmi for all of the details here in this wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome back Cecilia Jamazmi, Senior Editor at Mining.com to the Northern Miner Podcast. We're going to have an in-depth discussion on deep sea mining. What is going on there? Cecilia, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Adrian. Very happy to be back with this very interesting topic that is so hot these days. Yes, deep sea mining, everyone is talking about it. It's not only in the mining media. It's everywhere you open a newspaper, a website. People are talking about it. And with any activity that implies a major change, it has the public opinion divided between those who want to extract key minerals using electric vehicles and the transition to a green economy, and those who said there's not enough studies to prove that actually mining the seafloor is safe for both, not just the marine biodiversity, but for human life, ultimately. It's well known in the mining circles that we have a surging demand for battery metals and uh, there's not enough of them. And since the the seafloor opens like a new possibility, it really has kicked off some sort of international race to man the seafloor. The problem is there are no rules. Well, that's an interesting point. So the high seas are where what are sometimes called international waters, those areas right. that are not basically maybe more than 100 kilometers off your coast or whatever the number is, and that those are the high seas. You know, who owns that? Who's allowed to own that? And so there must be a certain amount of confusion there. So help us out here. Uh, there's many directions we can go. Um, help us frame the argument since you started with the controversy and the two sides. I mean, I remember the first article I ever wrote for the Northern Miner was on Nautilus Minerals back in 2013. They had to change their name to Deep Green. And I remember interviewing the CEO, and he was basically making it sound like the most innocent process ever, where it's just some little, you know, underwater, little tiny submarine just reaches out with a little 
you know, forked hand and just kind of collects the nodules, these spheres off the bottom of the ocean made of metal and then just floats back up and really nothing is harmed. So is that an accurate portrayal or what's the other side of this story? Help us frame this debate for us. Absolutely. The company that you're mentioning there is right now called The Metals Company. It's a startup, well, well positioned now. It was a startup based in Vancouver, Canada. And that's exactly what they proposed. As you said, just extracting these nodules that are supposed to be like an excise rock and then extracting the metals that we need so much for the energy transition from there. So up to there, it sounds fantastic, right? The problem is scientists especially argue that the main problem is that there are not enough studies. Really big study that was conducted by a third party, and it was sponsored by this mining company that proved the, the impact wouldn't be as dramatic or uh, negative as uh, most of the NGO organizations think. However, in 2020, Japan performed the first successful test, the extracting cobalt. Now, I have to be fair, it was not from the nodule. It was from the top of deep sea mountains. And according to a study that just was published last week, based on this sort of test, the journal was Current Biology. They showed that mining the seafloor that way from the mountains, right, uh, creates a plume of sediment that can spread through the surrounding water. And then the investigation went on on saying that they found since 2020 to now a decrease in ocean animals, both in and around the mining zone. And that's just one of many studies that have come out recently arguing that uh, it's dangerous because uh, they have detected, for instance, I wrote an article about two weeks ago that scientists detected about 500 species that we have no idea exist. And those species are exactly where at the depth where the mining, uh, deep sea mining would occur. I have to say, though, if you look at those sea creatures, they're all like minimal, they look almost like amoebas in a way, right? But they are life. And we really don't know what the role of these little creatures are in the whole chain, right? Like you don't really know what will happen if this little one that looks like a snail gets totally eliminated, what's in the chain that's going to happen at the very end, what's going to end up happening. And then there's another very recent study as well. It was put out by the an organization that groups uh, fisheries, and they claim that basically there's three tons of tuna that would disappear. Why? Because with climate change, these three kinds of tuna are moving towards the Pacific Ocean, the area where most of the miners, including the metal company, they are planning their operations. So they are going to be there when this happens. And this study claims that they'll disappear as well. Well, this is already very illuminating because up until this point, when I heard the term deep sea mining, I simply thought about little, you know, underwater semi-submarine things that are simply reaching over and picking up, you know, these metallic nodules. But if you're actually 
busting rock underground, you know, literally mining a mountain underwater, that is a completely different scenario. So what's I find so in- interesting in this conversation already is we have started to uncover the complexity. It is not just, a, you know, in a sense, my view up until what you just said is a fairly oversimplified view. Mm-hmm. I did not realize people wanted to mine mountains underwater because one could imagine that's a completely different story. Absolutely. As you say, the sediment, I mean, in a weird way, that converts me almost immediately. Now, interestingly as well, once you start going down that road, as you very brilliantly put, the food chain, what does this do to the bottom of the food chain exactly. is the concern, a pretty valid concern. So that is fascinating. So very interesting. So you need to mention that like, not all of them are planning that. And the metal companies is going for these nodules, but they acknowledge that they will generate some sort of sediment. Right. And they claim that that could be minimized in a way. Because the contractors don't actually propose to release the waste in the ocean. So they say that extracting the polymetallic nodules is one thing, and then the processing of them would not occur in the water. That's their argument. But they are the one company that are going for that. And as you very well said, there are many more and they have different views and different methodology. So they could be blasting mountains, no problem. Right. So when you say you're for or against deep sea mining, then I guess the natural question is, well, what kind of deep sea mining are you talking about? Because it's very easy to be for one kind and against another, one could say, or at least wanting more research, wanting more technology in order to manage, let's say, this plume that could arise. So where are we then? I mean, the UN, from my understanding, or the International Seabed Authority, they just met, I believe, last week, if I understood uh-huh. right, in, in Jamaica. Where are we then on this whole regulation side, I guess, you know, internationally, for starters, uh, as far as your understanding, mm-hmm. where where is this process? Well, this is another aspect of the deep sea mining that is very very important because as i said at the beginning there currently there are no rules there's nothing that tells you this is what you should do and this is the amount of emissions or anything comparable to what happens on earth or like on the ground so uh the international seabed authority that is a, a unit from the united nations this organization was created basically to come up with regulations and they is made up of about almost 170 states plus the European Union. And that was basically their mission. But last week, they actually missed a very important deadline. They were supposed to come up with a regulatory framework last week, and they didn't. They're still discussing it. People say they might delay it even further. But by missing the deadline, now companies can apply for licenses before even the rules are final. So that, for me at least, that's an issue. The fact that you can have a license and you still don't even know what the rules are going to be, both for companies, but also for the the environment in general. You know what I'm saying? Of Um, course. I mean, it feels like a disaster waiting to happen. So are mm -hmm. you saying, in other words, if you're a company right now, because we've passed this deadline where rules were supposed to be made, 
if you're a company, do they have to give you the license now? Yeah, if you apply, they, they will have to give it to you. But you are legally entitled to apply, let's say. Right, like and you can start this process. You to can start the process. So, so a small Pacific Island nation, Nauru, I think that's how it's pronounced. And they they tried to apply for a, for a CBS mining license. And they triggered some sort of legal uh, procedure that basically forced the ISA to come up with the rules by a certain deadline, and they didn't. So it's because of that nation that is like very keen on mining their seabed that this whole two-week convention is happening right now in Jamaica. The law of the sea actually was modified in 1994 to give nations like the island to begin the mining process if the rules were to drag too long. In other words, they wanted to put like the ISA to work and to work fast because they want to mine. They don't want to wait 20, 30 years. And unfortunately, they did miss the deadline. So now it's free for all in terms of licenses. Now, when they're actually going to be allowed to start mining, that I don't know. And that we should be learning about at the end of this week when the convention is closed. I think they finish Friday or Saturday. I'm not Okay, so a two-week convention. I mean, this is maybe their goal, and maybe you don't know this, but I wonder if their goal is to actually come up with a framework and with rules uh, by the end of this two weeks. Like one would assume with the deadline, you know, passed that there's an urgency out there and they're meeting for two weeks. Surely they want to walk away with something. Do you have any insights on that? The only thing I, I do know, they are trying, that's for sure. But um, I think the, it's very complex because they're setting up a structure for, for profit sharing and even taxing all these mm. mining efforts. So there's the legal, the ecological guidelines, and even the financial slash economical aspects of it. So it's a massive, massive task. And I doubt that even with two weeks of full, full-time work, they, they can actually come up with all of it. However, I do think that they may be able to establish some sort of framework to start from there. It's a fascinating issue because it really brings up this idea of world government to a certain degree. And there's almost like one can make the argument that there's actually, you know, despite all the political aspects of it, but if you just kind of step back, there is a need for kind of, you know, at least organizations like the UN, because right now, because nations aren't working in sync, you know, it's just like AI where, you know, maybe we need rules with AI, uh-huh. but now everybody's in a huge competition, these nation states. So nobody's, you know, holding hands at the UN and putting enlightened legislation together. And, and you know, the, so the members are facing each other because we have Canada, France, Germany, to mention the big ones. They want to pause deep sea mining until there's like a clear understanding of the environmental consequences. and especially uh, the French president Emmanuel Macron is the one that has been the more vocal about it. And he actually wants a permanent ban. I don't think that's going to happen because we do need minerals and because there's a lot of other countries that are pro deep sea mining, including China, Russia, and surprisingly, Norway, because Norway, as you know, they've been, the economy has been very dependent on oil 
And now they mm -hmm. want to kind of diversify their economy away from that. And they realize their seabed, because of their geographical position, is very, very rich in minerals. Even they claim even rare earth minerals, which are very demanded these days with the um, ban and limit that China has established and set up. So, well, there you go. You ha we have countries pro, countries again, and more than 700 marine biologists and scientists that sign a petition demanding a moratorium. We don't oh. know the results of this moratorium. We'll know after these two weeks, I imagine. But as I said, the licenses will be granted. Perhaps the moratorium would be in the actual beginning of activities. But uh, once you have the, the license approved, all you need to do is wait for the studies and probably if they're all favorable, you just go for it. It's, it's a big step to have the license, as we all know, right? Sure, of course. Uh, mining and permitting are, go hand in hand, as we both mm -hmm. know. So do you think, like, if you were to think out loud here, this is just more for your opinion. I mean, uh -huh, uh -huh. is it because there's ambiguity here? Like, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but what are the rules for international waters? Like, is the reason, say, France is not for deep sea mining is because maybe they don't have many minerals off their coast, whereas Norway might be completely for it because they see an alternative to oil and, you know, all of a sudden they have the green metals and they're good for another 50 or 100 years as far as their economy is concerned. Do you know what the rules are for international waters? Like, can French companies go in there or do you know? In that, I don't know, like, exactly. All I know is that the, the United Nations, the convention says that beyond 12 nautical miles from any coast, territorial coast, is common property. It belongs to everyone. So everyone could apply. That's the one thing that I do know. And basically what that means that profits from mineral discovered in the deep sea could be shared to some extent by more than two, three nations, whomever is close by. It's wild because it reminds me of the moon. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like all of a sudden there will be a gold rush, you know, in quotes, you know, there will be a rush to stake everything you can one imagines and you could end up with like just crazy amounts of development maybe too much development because there will be a race to you know get as, as every little last piece of metal that's in the sea mm -hmm. exactly and so, there is really not enough studies right now so it's really something that fascinating to learn about and to continue to follow but Personally, I feel that there's not enough information to make a decision in either side, pro or against. And just as a final question, just uh, bringing it back to Canada, you were mentioning they were against it. I mean, I think I saw something like a headline uh, that they wanted environmental assessments, I believe but, it was. Do you uh -huh. do you have any information on that, uh, Canada's well, kind of perspective? The Canadian government, exactly. They say that they're not against the idea or the principle, but what they are against is the fact that uh, any company is allowed to do anything before there are very clear studies and environmental assessments in any area, no, not only where some company may have the license, but everywhere where there are plans already. So it's basically Incredible. Like the environmental assessment, which is a good thing, very good thing, especially we don't know what we were going to be killing with this activity. 
Right. And I mean, in theory, you could see a Russian miner, you know, 12 miles off the coast of France, according uh-huh. to this, like in theory. So oh, this yeah. just sounds like a disaster waiting to it happen. Does. Fascinating. It does. And I'm very happy that there's a group um, working on the legal part of it. <laughs> well, absolutely. It sounds like it, we're in dire need of that. Do you have any final thoughts for us as we wrap up here, Cecilia? I think that it's important to remember that we are fighting against climate change. The consequences of climate change are more obvious than ever. And we do need this metal. So whether they come from deep sea mining or from other sources, I don't know from where, but we do need them. So it's important to keep an open mind. Absolutely. Balanced, open mind, pragmatism, it sounds like over you know, ideology here. Well, Cecilia Jamazmi, Senior Editor at Mining.com, thank you for once again joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. My pleasure. And thank you once again to Cecilia Jamazmi of Mining.com for helping us understand more about deep sea mining and really illuminating all of the subtleties in what can often be an oversimplified argument. So, Always uh, educational experience hanging out with Cecilia. And for those of you that love going to events, they don't get much better than the Canadian Mining Symposium occurring in London on October 12th and 13th. Just go to events.northernminer.com for more information and to reserve a ticket. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.